0: And we'll get rolling here, and obviously got a lot to talk about. Want to uh, get your opinion on some things, and obviously sure. talk about the new Julian K record. Got to talk edema, But first and foremost, I got to geek out with you. Last time we talked, Episode 8 had come out, and we were both kind of meh on it. How did you find Episode 9? Did it Was that the conclusion you were looking for? Let's geek out about Star Wars first to get things rolling.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah, so Episode 9, I'll tell you, after The Last Jedi, the whole thing for me went so off course it was so not fulfilling i feel like in episode eight like just like nothing really happened like it was such a non it was just a non-event right and the big stuff that did happen was kind of like a you know like a boner killer (laughs) Like, you know, Snoke just gets killed, you know, Kylo Ren, you know, I guess he was supposed to really take the dark path and it was just so emo. It just wasn't even like, and and by, by the way, the emo terminology for Kylo, I, I don't really mind emo because emotional and stuff like that is what gets you to the dark side. Right. Right. So that's all cool. It just wasn't done. And, a sufficiently badass way. Like at the end, he was just like kind of a fool, and I just felt like Kylo Ren was—he you know had the ability to be a lot more dangerous. And the whole space chase <laughs> was so stupid. But what about and, nine?
0: What about nine? Did you did it come home for you? Did 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 it at well, least turn around? That, at nine.
1: That's where I'm getting. It was so brutal to pull out of that. I liked nine. I enjoyed it in the theater. I've watched it a few times at home. But when I compare it with uh, Episode Seven and and nine seven i probably watched 150 times at home even though it's kind of derivative of the first star wars or episode you know four it really was star wars though it felt like a star wars movie and it was good and there wasn't really any missteps like it was good like i was interested in who kylo ren was i was interested to find out who ray was i was interested to find out what finn like how finn would develop i was interested in um poe
0: yeah po. i was Super interested in
1: Poe, but it's like none of the questions were really answered. Like in the beginning, Kylo, you know, even episode uh, 9, you know, bringing Palpatine back, all this kind of stuff. It's just, man, I really would have liked some suspicion of a greater force out there manipulating everything in 7 and (laughs) 8 before 9 comes. Like, oh, it's Palpatine all the time. It's been him the whole time. So I, I do feel like it was like a major retcon, and it was probably not the best um in that regard i just kind of felt like palpatine just came out of nowhere like even with the scroll voices from the past or something like that yeah. i don't know exactly what it was you know it's like whoa surprise it's palpatine all the time and you're just like okay you know as a movie i thought it was totally good totally fun jj abrams doesn't really produce garbage and he's great i really wish he would have done the whole thing
0: yeah that so, that's... This whole thing that's what messed Went up. Somewhere. My two biggest things with with episode nine that that bugged me were right at the beginning and right at the end. Starting off with like a, a flashback of a fight of like Kylo Ren like going through the galaxy and kicking ass, rather than it being one specific fight, felt very not Star Star Wars like to me. Like we're supposed to start off the movie in the battle in the heat of the battle. Let's get into it, rather than recapping all the destruction that Kylo Ren yep. is doing. And then yeah, at the very end. When she kisses him, it was like, is this just some kind of Luke-led uh, homage, like that you're trying to pay from back in the past? Like that kiss was kind of out of nowhere at the end; it made zero sense to me.
1: I didn't mind the kiss as much, to be honest with you, because it was like, oh, you know, some some actual romance in Star Wars or or to some degree some love some true love not just Han and Leia but you know like oh okay so the two kind of like anti-heroes and the hero sort of like they, they kiss and make up and then he dies okay I get it it was okay that was okay with me but the one thing that really bothered me was so did the entire 7, 8, 9 happen over like a year and a half <laughs> I mean really that was like the. That's the whole span of this whole thing. So Kylo's entire arc and Ray's arc. Like Ray became the baddest Jedi ever in like a year. I mean, Jesus Christ! You know, it takes longer to become a hairdresser.
0: <laughs> Absolutely it true. Like wow. And, and, had the, <laughs> you know? and had the least amount of training. All of her trainers died along the way. I know. I know, and I get it. You kind of have to be like, oh, she's got
1: the Palpatine blood, so she's just like, she's like so badass, like built in. Like, Palpatine, Palpatine must have just been so powerful in the Force, you know? <laughs> and I guess with Baby Yoda, you're just like, oh, man, that, that race must be so Force-sensitive. Even the babies can do Force stuff. But, you know, that baby's 50 years old, dude. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and he can, like, thank God for the Mandalorian. Thank God for Mandalorian. And by the way, I didn't hate Nine. I just... The whole thing just became so shallow, you know, even Exegol. So the Emperor's on Exegol. Okay, cool. Well, let's really get into the Sith then. Let's figure out what this is, how he did this, like all of it just, I don't know. I feel like they need a director's cut or something.
0: Rank it in a scale of one to ten for me. That'll, that'll do it. Episode nine on a scale of one to ten. Yeah, Seven. Where do you put it? Yeah, I think seven's good. Like it made me, I, I left the, feel, the theater with a better feeling than I did after eight. And it kind of wrapped things so, up. I didn't like the presentation. Like you said, you had to do some fill in the blanks yourself. I think seven's a, a good score for it. And I agree. The first yeah. one, seven was the, the best of the bunch. One thing I wanted yeah. to make sure that we, 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 we get into that we didn't last time we talked. and We're at Inland Empire radio station, not too far away. And I contributed yeah. during the, the pandemic to your to your restaurant wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the, the restaurant game and and go ahead and brag a little bit about all your different restaurants and and I think I bought a, a twenty dollar uh, gift card to Gypsy Den. What what's the food like there? What can I expect? God, thank you so much. Um,
1: yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a local restaurant owner. Um, I've been. Uh, in Orange County for uh, 15 years, approximately 15 years. We started out with two locations called the Gypsy Den, um, lovingly nicknamed the Den. We have one at the lab in Costa Mesa. We have one in the Artist Village in Santa Ana, two awesome locations. Uh, we then branched off and started Lola Gaspar, which is in Santa Ana as well. And we just opened up an incredible, a really popular pizza place called 2145 in Costa Mesa. And that's on uh, 2145 Placentia. Ah. And... Um, the Gypsy Den is probably the first kind of alt, you know, alternative kind of music culture type of thing cafe with vegan and vegetarian healthier options in Orange County. And it's been around, you know, over 20 years, I'm um, probably closer to 25 years. I bought it 15 years ago and expanded the brand. And we have healthier kind of cafe fare, really cool music, great atmosphere. You're going to get more hipster kind of vibes. And we have two great patios. We have an amazing brunch. Um, we're usually packed out for brunch. And even, even today with social distancing, we're able to take our patios and put tons of space in between all the tables. Tables, and we have been having packed outdoor areas. So we just spill out onto the promenade in, Sa- in Santa Ana. And in Costa Mesa at the lab, they've allowed us to spill out all through the outdoor areas of the lab. So the inside is empty, but the outside is is, is packed. But there's, there's a good six to 10 feet between every table. We were closed for the better part of three months, which was devastating. And to be honest with you, I can't tell you that we'll make it. But when we opened, the love was, I mean, people are coming, but You know, when you're at 45% capacity max, even if everyone comes, you're still looking at a really, really hard time when you've got two to three months of, you know, due and you've got vendors, you know, that haven't been paid. You've got, you know, you're right on the edge payroll wise. Lola Gaspar in Santa Ana stayed open through the whole thing and switched its model to do the inside. So it was a little bit more of a grocery kind of market vibe. And they spilled out onto the patio and they're doing full cocktail, killer Spanish, you know, shareable plates type of stuff. But of course, now it's a little less sharing, tons of. Space between all the tables, but they were able to stay open through the whole thing, and they've been doing a really great job. 2145, we won an award last year for in the top 10 best new restaurants in Orange County. We do a classic Napalese approach to, uh, or excuse me, a Japanese approach to classic uh, Napalese pizza. Oh. And so we have a very focused Japanese kaizen type of technique where we focus on making a few items yeah. perfectly, amazingly. So what a lot of people don't know is that in Japan, they're winning the awards in Italy. They're, they're like number one for pizza. Really? So we went to, yeah, yeah. And the pizzerias in Japan in Tokyo are mind blowing. They literally serve like four different pizzas. Like you'll get like a four cheese pizza, like a margarita pizza and and literally, and there'll be two other kinds and they make them one at a time. And when you get that four cheese pizza, you can taste the olive oil. You can taste the salt that's thrown over the pizza when it's in the wood fire grill. You can taste the four different cheeses in your mouth. You can taste it all separately. We kind of thought that was the most incredible thing ever. And we took our chef over there and we kind of studied what they were doing. And um, we're doing um, a version of or our version of that here in, in Costa Mesa. I mean, we have a blue cheese and honey pizza that is like it's like dessert. I mean, it's, it's one of the most popular pizzas. We have a spicy margarita that is super simple and just beautiful. So right now we're open to go and we're about to open up into the parking lot and our outdoor. We have a giant outdoor patio area that we're about to open up. So that's a super popular neighborhood place, winning some awards organically. And, you know, we have no press team. We don't have like a social media staff. We don't have any anything like that. It's just us. You know, I got to say, you know, I almost started some GoFundMe pages for for these restaurants because, you know, we. do need everyone to show up and support us and come. And that's super, super important to all these local restaurants. But to make up the loss of months of revenue, I really, really feel for my fellow business people, my fellow small business people, because I know people that have been devastated. You look at debt as being like the worst thing. And I would say there's other things that are really, really bad. And that's the destruction of everything you you worked your entire life for. You know, most of these small business people don't like people like me. I mean, there's times when I've made a lot of money and it's been really, really great, but I don't have a million dollars in the bank. You know what I mean? And if right. the money, these restaurants stop making money, the margins are so small, you know, you can sell really quickly with two or 300 grand in debt and you didn't do anything wrong. You know, you didn't create COVID-19 in a lab, but (laughs) I kind of joke a lot. Like I didn't create COVID-19, but I'm going to pay for it. You know, so the government help, all that kind of stuff. It's It's only a piece, you know, doesn't really cover everything. So, you know, we really do need the community to come out. And I just recommend that everyone really try to support your local restaurants, buy gift cards, come in, help them. You know, if they do a GoFundMe, anything like that, help them out because if they don't get that help, they're not going to be there. And, you know, I'm driving by strip malls with like three, four, five vacant spaces or closed spaces. And it's just like, whoa. And every one of those spaces represents a shattered family. It represents a divorce. It represents, and this is terrible, but it represents a potential mental health issue or potential like suicidal problem, you know, like that. Yeah. I hate to say it, but it's a real thing. Suicides are going up, not down, majorly. It also represents a drug or alcohol problem because guess what people do when they lose absolutely everything and their family starts to crumble and they can't pay their mortgage and they can't, and they've worked their whole lives. They've done everything right. You know, they've done all the things you're supposed to do in America and they saved up their money. They put it into a business. And they lost it due to this epidemic and they have no one to turn to. So I really want people to put a face on all those empty spaces and all those places that closed down, you know, and then they had, you know, people that tried to hang in there also had to, you know, withstand and endure riots and constant protests and raving bands of people looting. You know, even in my neighborhood, people were were just, you know, when all this stuff was going down, there were roving bands of looters that were just hitting the places that that didn't get hit that often. It was almost like just to remind everyone, hey, we're going to get you here too. So, hey, I'm not making a social commentary. I'm saying, guys, there are human beings that own these places. Please put a face on these uh, you know these businesses and understand that these aren't evil people. These are the people that are keeping America going. These are the people that all these looters are going to come and look for a job from after they're done tearing things apart. Yeah, totally cool with people protests, but I'm not cool with tearing people's lives apart. That's not how we build peace. That's not how we find equality.
0: Not at all. That's why I want to make sure we got we got the restaurant plugs in there and, and got the word out about I, that. And uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I I feel it too. My my cousin, I have two cousins that own a food truck that are done now. They're you know folding up shop oh. after a couple of years of a food truck and just like we're supposed to be at Coachella, made a killing at Coachella food truck every year. All the music festivals done done once well, COVID let's,
1: hit. Let's a little a quick word about that: the music festivals and and live shows being done. It's not just a problem for the big rock stars there are millions of yeah. people that work at industry and a lot of these people are are kind of quote unquote under the table you know like if you're in a smaller band and you employ five or six people on tour you know say my band you know honestly a lot of it's a lot of cash a lot of you know but it's you know it's a living these are hard working fifteen hour a day people. Yep. You know, because they, they, they are kind of like on the outskirts of society and, and you know they're they're traveling workers, but their work is important and it brings happiness and smiles and joy to Millions of people a year. You know, not that there's anything wrong with circus employees, but I mean, this isn't a, a carnival. <laughs> you know, like the, the negative uh, stigma that goes behind roadies and, and musicians and all that kind of stuff is, is really antiquated. These are people who work like crazy. You know, they are the people, I mean, they're, they're putting in 15, 16, 17 hours a day, you know, for months at a time and trying to make all the money they can then, and then they have to kind of scrounge for work. It's devastation on a high scale, and I just think that, you know, people, we need to crank out love and support, Absolutely. And, uh,
0: let's let's get things a little bit happy and, and get into the music and, and talk about uh, Harmonic Disruptor. And I'm kind of curious, like I, I'm a guy that played drums as a kid in high school and college, so I know a tiny bit about music, but not a whole lot and can totally appreciate getting in a garage and jamming with the band and, and banging out tunes. But kind of curious for you with, with Julian Kay, is it a little bit of a different situation, you know, as opposed to, hey, I think I got a riff for a song it, 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 since it's born keyboard based is it more about coming up with the sound or the sonic template or the melody or or a great play on words like harmonic disruptor does it start with the lyric first or talk about kind of the the songwriting process kind of juxtaposed to the uh, you know the traditional garage band approach how how is that different right. for Julian K
1: That's a super good question and a super uh, interesting uh, question. Funny enough, I'm sitting in a, you know, albeit my garage is is a high-end recording studio, but it was a garage. So I am in a garage studio right now and we have tons of keyboards and tons of guitars and all sorts of vintage gear. We are highly influenced by gear. We are highly influenced by the sounds it makes. And I would say that, it just depends on who's writing the song or who comes up with the song's seed regarding, you know, how influential the gear and the sound is. If a mirror writes or comes up with the idea, it's going to be influenced from a from a vintage keyboard or some kind of like, you know, some kind of incredible, you know, guitar that that guitar is the only guitar that sounds like that. He comes from this like sonic landscape type of mentality. And if I come up with a vocal idea over whatever he's doing, it becomes a Julian K song. I personally write a lot more like a singer-songwriter. Ideas pop into my head, melody, rhythm, sometimes lyrics. A lot of times, it'll be influenced by something I hear or see. It could be fashion, it could be a movie, it could be um, some sort of art, it could be another song, it could be old songs. And I will sit down with an acoustic guitar and kind of and kind of write it. And so my songs, you can kind of immediately play on a guitar and sing. Whereas Amir will come with a more, he'll come with something that almost sounds like it almost sounds like a finished track, but with no vocals. That that's the two kind of juxtaposition types of approaches that we that we take, and you put it together, and then you get you get a sound like Julian K. And we are we used to joke that we're kind of like an indie tronic or indie garage band um <laughs> out of Long Beach California because we do work in my garage but you know my garage does have a floating room within a room in other words there's actual airspace in between the, the 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 two rooms that are you know <laughs> you know in my garage it's like a, it's a that's a complicated way of saying it's completely soundproofed and sonically treated and with its own you know dedicated ac and its own dedicated circuit and all that. <laughs>
0: it's pretty crazy <laughs> but uh it used to be a garage is it fair to say that amir is really the mvp of every single julian k album
1: um it depends on what you consider an mvp he is extremely important you know i would say that you kind of can't do it without either one of us i write huge amount of material and and i probably write Probably the most. And of course, I'm the singer. So I create, you know, a lot of the tone for what it is we're doing. And Amir, uh, nothing would be recorded without him. (laughs) Nothing, you know, I mean, so it's, it's really tough because you just kind of can't have what we do without the two of us, you know, we, and we do what we do with a lot of different people, but it sounds like Julian Kay because Amir and I. So I definitely like to give credit because, you know, to Amir, because I think that uh, to me, I can't, I can't do what I do without him. But there wouldn't be a Julian K. There wouldn't be the tone. There wouldn't be, you know, when I say tone, I don't mean uh, the, the, the tone of the instruments because that's very, very much him. But the tone of the music, the direction, the... Uh, the style. The, image, the Yeah, so that's kind of what what I do. But, you know, there's a lot of commingling of responsibilities. You know, I don't even try to do his job. And he doesn't really <laughs> try to do mine. You know, kind of knows, hey, here's this thing I have. You know, does it does it do anything to you? And if I come up with something, then it's a song. And I come to him and I go, hey, here's a song I wrote. There you go. And then he's, oh, if he, if he likes it, then it becomes a song. So it's, it's just one of those things. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it depends on what album. Depends on what, you know, California Noir was very, very much me um harmonic disruptor was very very much uh, an Amir concept
0: ah interesting I, you know yeah. I was curious to learn too Go take me back to when you first met Amir I mean you've been making music with this man forever but but where did yeah. you first meet him he's not from Bakersfield
1: no no he's um, from originally from New York then San Diego and then LA and Jay Gordon from Orgy introduced me to him when, when Korn hooked Jay Gordon and I up to kind of become something because they knew that they knew I was something and they knew that Jay had something and they were like man why don't you guys do something together and we were like okay and so I met Jay became friends really, really quickly. And Jay introduced me to Amir and then Amir and I became closer than anyone in the band. And I I recognized really quickly that Amir was insanely talented, extremely intelligent, and he could do a bunch of things that I couldn't do. And I've always looked for people to be around and be with that were really intelligent and could do things that I can't do because then I learn from them and they fill in the gaps and stuff that I'm just not great at. I've also been really, really comfortable allowing people to be better than me at things. You know, I'm better at certain things a better singer i can create you know lyrics and words and i'm a great songwriter Uh, i'm not a great technician that's a huge thing in a a musician nowadays has to be you know an incredible technician they have to be very intelligent you have to be able to digest tons of information you have to be able to write lyrics you have to be able to sing so there's so much stuff you have to be able to do and i would say even even me being not a great technician i'm probably better than your average human being right but when you look at a guy like amir Dude, a Grammy-nominated producer and engineer. Um, Not only that, it's one of the best guitar players and instrumentalists that I've ever heard. So it's like, okay, well, that's a good combo. I gravitate towards people that are like that. You know, I gravitate towards people that are masters of the stuff that I'm not a master of.
0: You say yin to your yang.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I need and then you have the other side, you have like the Chester Bennington's where I'm a little bit more I would never say that I'm a talent at his level because I, I was in awe of Chester. But people that knew us, you know, that was my you know, my other best friend. You know, people that knew us were like, Oh boy, the you know, the toxic Avengers, you know, the two the two evil twins. You know, we were much more similar in our in our approach, our personalities, and the things that we're good at. We're both, you know, good at lyrics. We're both good at singing. We're both good at being personalities. We're both good at, like, coming up with kind of a vibe and, and direction. And we're both good songwriters. We can play guitar and sing and do all that kind of stuff. So, again, Amir really was someone that would enable guys like us to do what we do. So that's how you get Dead by Sunrise as well.
0: Yeah, but see, you're saying Chester is more kind of like you rather than the Amir side of you, you know? Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. I totally get that. Amir
1: allows guys like us to focus on the things we're good at, you know, and we allow guys like Amir to focus on things that he's great at, you know?
0: I love it. I love it, man. You know, I got to ask you, since we're kind of talking about songwriting process in, in the early days, and I was blown away to find out, looking at the songwriting credit, your credit on Blind, my all-time favorite corn tune and, and Daddy, and kind of curious if you wouldn't mind telling that story about your involvement in those those tunes.
1: Number one, I'm, I'm completely honored to be involved at all in anything that. that- a band is amazing as corn as uh as you know, put over the top, which they absolutely do with blind and, and I can never give them enough credit for what they did with that song. And um, you know, if it wasn't for them, I don't think anyone would have really heard the song. How that happened was Jonathan and I were in our first band together. It was right. called Sex Arts. Right name, you know, a bunch of kids in Bakersfield, California. You know, I was probably, I think I was 18. I was in beauty college. I was becoming a hairdresser. And um, Jonathan was um, the youngest mortician's assistant, I think, in the, con- in the country, which, you know, I thought was pretty interesting. And our friend Dennis Shin was also in cosmetology school with me. I grew up with him. And we've had a, a huge falling out since then. The guy doesn't like me very much. And I, I think because you know, I went on to have a music career and he kind of, he didn't have much of a music career. So that's always been an issue. And Jonathan, of course, had a, had a great music career as well and still does. So, we uh, created Blind, the three of us created Blind in Sex Art and and Daddy. You know, we were playing our version of Blind for, you know, for a few years. And Corn and um, was called LAPD at the time. And they were a Bakersfield band that moved to LA and got a record deal, on this of stuff. And we really looked up to LAPD. They were only a few years older than us. But, you know, as far as me and Dennis and John, everyone were concerned, those guys were like the guys that. They were the best guitar players. They were the coolest. They, they moved to L.A. and got a deal with Triple X, and we were just like, Triple X Records, you know, and we were like, oh, man, you know, they're really doing it. They're cool. And they, they sounded good. They were just a rad band. They've never not been rad. And even as LAPD, and I think they were called Creep for a while um, when they came down looking for a singer. They heard about John, and they heard about Sex Art, and they came and watched us play a show. Afterwards, you know, I, I didn't meet them at that time, um, but I'd heard they were there, and you know, because I thought they were awesome. And they ended up hearing John and just like anyone that would hear John, um, <laughs> you get chills and you go, Oh my god, that guy's really good. And they really had something going on. We were just kind of a, a small band from Bakersfield, you know, just kind of playing bars and stuff like that. And we you know, we played some battles of the band and stuff like that and we won, you know, so we were pretty good. Oh, by the way, Dave DeRue from Adema was right, in that band. Right. Okay, right. So so Jonathan, Dave DeRue and me were in Sex Art. A large portion, majority of that band went on to sell millions of albums. Oh, yeah. Which is, so there was something there, obviously. And the guys that were really, really good in that band went on to make a career, you know. And, and lo and behold, we're all still great friends, except for except for Dennis, of course. But um,
0: Was Blind your riff? Did, were you the one that came up with that, that riff or like... What was your contribution to it?
1: Uh, actually, funny enough, like vocals, guitars, like all sorts of stuff. I mean, we all wrote it together. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the parts that, that Brian uh, sings, uh, I, I think I, I wrote those, too. Like, uh, The Place Inside My Mind, da-da-da-da-da. You know, so, I mean, it was a collaboration, and we were all writing. But, um, yeah, I'm all over that crap. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I was a guitar player. So Corn or Creep at the time asked Jonathan to uh, to come down and audition or play with them. And uh, Jonathan talked to me about it, and I was like, oh, that's that's awesome! Like I was like blown away because that was like our favorite band. (laughs) We were super into them. And so we went down to Huntington Beach and played with them, and it went really well. And he ended up like joining, you know, them. And at the time, I became a hairdresser, and I was still playing music and everything. But I didn't really take. I didn't know that you could do music for a living. So I, I I wasn't like bummed out. I was happy for John. So it didn't go bad. It wasn't like a bad thing. Eventually they invited me down to a show. They had a surprise for me and they played Blind and they did, you know, what they did to it. You know, they they had a more detuned version of it. It was really awesome and they're they're killer and I was blown away and I was stoked. I mean, I was really happy. I was like, "Man, that's so awesome." And we were all friends and that's cool. And I finally got to, you know, become friends with them and that made me happy. And then it became big. They got <laughs> signed and I had no idea that you could make money for music.
0: <laughs> so, that was your first paycheck
1: hello. for music, really, right? That was my first paycheck for music. And it was like serious. And so I was like, wow, I mean, I realized that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were rich, but I didn't have any other reference. I had no idea. And then, you know, I started to become more of an adult and I moved down to, you know, L.A., Orange County area and then um, kind of rekindled a more like a more serious relationship with everyone, uh, all the corn guys. And they started putting me together with what became Orgy. And then they signed Orgy. And so it's just been a really, really great story since then. And Jonathan and I toured together even up until, what, a year and a half ago with his uh, solo project. So the guy has been, Jonathan has been a huge force in my life for 26 years. The friendship has been just an incredible friendship and just, I mean, we've had so many incredible times together and everyone from Head to David Silvera, they've just been huge parts of my life. Like the love story that I have with corn is just not to be messed with. It's so serious. You know, I mean, these guys are incredible people. They have become even more awesome human beings. Even up to me checking into rehab a few months ago, the guy that called me the day I went in was head. offered to help me in every single way a guy could help another guy. You know what I mean? Jonathan was incredibly encouraging. Like, dude, you know, stay strong. And he kicked alcohol during Family Values, you know, years and years ago. And he gave me all that backstory and all that kind of stuff. And I, I really didn't know that he cold turkeyed it on Family Values. I had no idea because I was partying with Rammstein every night. (laughs) you know so you really find out when you take a a massive life change like that you really find out who the real men are and who the real guys in your life are so it's not just guys that helped me gave me a career they're also guys that are there for me as i'm checking into rehab like the day that i'm going in they're the guys that are checking on me they're they're the guys that that are true true friends someday i'm going to tell the story of how rad that group of people are, how rad that band is, and how much love and respect those guys deserve. I mean, I just can't say enough great things for them, and how grateful I am that they play Blind and Daddy, and I went and saw them in San Diego with Allison Chains. Unbelievable show. Probably one of the best corn shows I've got to see. And hung out with everyone all night. Super awesome. And the next day, I think it was. And I was thank John and and Ray and, and Brian and, and Brian sent me a text on the on the little group chat and he said, dude, he's like, Thank you for writing Blind. It's the best opening song ever. <laughs> it <laughs> I really was like, is. It's just so cute. You know what I mean? It was so sweet. I mean, I'm I'm a significant writer on that track, but I don't really feel like i'm much of anything because without corn it wouldn't be anything no one would care about that song no one would care about that weird riff that you asked (laughs) me about you know what i mean it's like i honestly feel like whatever i did on that song is not even relevant because look what corn did you know what i mean so i'm really leery about even the credit that i get on it because you know yeah it was written in my band and we we collaborated on that it's awesome me john and dennis wrote that song but corn made it awesome Broke the universe with it.
0: Oh, absolutely! I lost my mind the first time I heard that tune. That's why I had to ask you about it because it really did change the world of of music for me. And great to hear that you know, as big as a band Corn is, they still have that family value and and keeping you inside the family and taking care of you. And also ask you and appreciate all the time. We got to get to some edema talk too. But last old tune that you were a part of that you had a much bigger hand in and another paycheck too i imagine who was it that said hey you know we should cover blue monday do you remember that that initial conversation how that got started i think amir
1: was the culprit and i think uh-huh. that him and Jay were at like a, a used cd store remember those uh-huh. and in like Tahoe or Reno or Truckee, because we recorded the album up in Truckee. At least most of the album, we rented like a, a huge, you know, cabin up in the snow and basically did drugs for you know two months and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and and, and accomplished very little. <laughs> we definitely planted the flag that Orgy was the Motley Crew of of the year two thousands. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty nutty. But I think Amir or Jay, I can't remember which one, but it was one of them saw that single like in the used bin or maybe it was that album and they bought it because they were just like, this is sacrilege. Like, this can't be in the used bin! Like, this, you can't. This is like one of the best songs of all time. You know, brought it back to the cabin. And we were all, of course, just raging and partying and not getting a whole lot of music done. But, you know, we had the skeleton of Candy S. I I mean, it was kind of there. You know and I mean? kind of knew that we were this weird thing, this weird band. And uh, I think Amir was the one that said, you know, we were listening to the song. We were all, you know, loving it and geeking out together. I think Amir was like, we should cover this song. It just really quickly happened. And when we added the chorus to the song, because the song never had a chorus, it was a big song, but it was like an underground, you know, dance song. Right. We added that chorus. It became like, whoa. And honestly, in some ways, it probably helped orgy may have helped us figure out, you know, what exactly we were doing with our guitar tone and and our choruses and stuff like that. And I think that we just felt like if we were going to do the song, we couldn't just rip the song off. We had to completely reimagine what the song was. And I've heard a lot of different covers of that song and nothing had the impact of what we did, you know, and I hear hear a lot of covers and a lot of times they sound just like the song that the, you know, or a little bit better recording of the song with a different with a slightly different singer. What we did was, I mean, we ripped it to shreds and redid the whole <laughs> thing and added a part that didn't exist before. I honestly think that that probably helped Orgy get some direction, you know, and at the time Limp Biscuit, you know, broke on a cover, Marilyn Manson broke on a cover. I think that a lot of these bands used a cover to kind of you know, get their footing and for, I think it was no different for us and thank God you know, Stitches worked and you know, fic- Fiction worked and we had other, you know, hit songs and all that kind of stuff but I think that Blue Monday really opened up the, the door for us and I do think that was an, I think Amir was the one that pushed that Interesting. And, and, uh, yeah, it was really fun.
0: Obviously, and, and Stitch is probably my all-time favorite orgy tune from the early days, and I yeah. absolutely love that song. But I, I appreciate all the time. I don't want to take up too much more, but I can't let you go without getting some Edema talking. And I love the live yeah. videos that you guys have been kind of doing, kind of behind the scenes from the uh, the practice space and going through different songs and, and different song ideas. Where are we at in the, the songwriting process for Edema?
1: We're we're deep. I'm spending a lot of time trying to make sure that I can identify what makes Edema Edema. I'm spending a lot of time listening to album one and two, and um, I'm not doing it to copy it. I'm doing it to to really get where the music comes from, the elements that make the music special, and the verbiage, like the the, the stories. And the cool thing is that I'm from Bakersfield. Yep. <laughs> we all used to be in bands together, you know. So it's not like this weird thing. I'm literally like you know, the guy that was there. You know, that it was around. And because of that, I really, really respect it and I get it and I get where they're coming from. So there's a whole lot of songs right now that are kind of in the bag, like they're demoed out and they're there. I'm just taking a lot of time to make sure that whatever I do on it, it honors edema and it's something that edema fans are going to really dig. The last thing I want to do, because that band has had a lot of missteps, they've had a lot of issues and that's what happens when you have drug addiction issues and, you know, issues with people in the band and they have definitely had a lot of drama with Marky and all that kind of stuff and they've never really been able to get solid and stable. But the band's popular. They sold a million records, you know? Their songs are great. Right. That still exists. The band is still writing edema music. When you get Tim Flucky, Mike Ransom, Dave DeRue, and Chris Coles together, they create edema songs and they sound like the band edema. So I'm like, awesome man. Well, someone in my band is named Amir derock and he's a Really accomplished producer. Why don't we have Amir do what we're doing? You do this record with us. He would try to focus with me on what makes a Dema rad. He would try to capture that feeling again—that you know, the feeling that they should always have been doing—and that is those electronic elements, that really melodic, heavy guitars. You know, all the stuff that made them really, really cool. And that's what's happening right now. So my job is going to be to sing the way I sing, but make sure that I'm honoring what a Dema is, and that it feels great in that context and that's one of the reasons I did some of the live in the studio stuff and I'm going to keep doing it was to get some feedback from fans because if fans were like oh man that doesn't sound like edema at all then I would know that we're kind of off base and, and it's a great time because we're kind of demoing stuff out fortunately the response I got was like oh my god edema's back oh my god that sounds like the original edema. oh my god what the hell so you know I don't sing like Marky so I don't, I don't really know you know what it is other than I think that we're hitting we're hitting the spirit correctly and that's just Did It's that weird thing you can't identify, manifesting it, you know, like really focusing on listen to these first two albums. This is where the magic was just flowing. Let's touch that again. Let's remember who we are. Don't copy it. Just remember where we came from. Write new stuff, push the envelope, but remember to respect your roots.
0: Any idea when that album's coming out? Any any ballpark time frame?
1: Well, I can tell you, coronavirus has put everything on the track of like the new Julian K album, Trauma Echoes, and the new Edema album, TBD. Um, you know, regarding the name code name, 360 degrees of separation, <laughs> like the code name right now. Cause I have a song that's about that right now. It's uh-huh. about isolation, no matter what you're surrounded by everyone, but you're totally separate. Cool concepts, right? <sighs> Sounds like a We're going to be spending the next six months in the studio. I mean, unless a tour pops out of thin air and a, and a vaccine for coronavirus happens and we're, and we're all comfortable hitting the road. I think we're going to be in the studio uh, for the next six months and we're going to be streaming it too by the way so if people want to watch this stuff every now and then we stream on our Facebook for free but Julian K has a Patreon account and I got to tell you right now that thing has saved our lives our fans have saved our lives so you can get in there and subscribe and you will get access to live streaming content live as in we do it live here every weekend so we perform we work in the studio I do sessions where I like tomorrow I do a session called Decode Radio and that's where I the fans vote on a song and when they choose Use it. I do a live Zoom session with like a hundred fans live. They can talk to me and everything, and I break down the song lyrically line by line. And I get into the file and I share the screen with them and everything. And I talk about the tracks and how we created them and all that kind of stuff. So that's just one example of the stuff we do. We have more stuff. We have one with Amir where he goes through how he creates the music and how he records it and how we did these certain things. So you really want to get some cool content every week? Support us on Patreon. It's really cool.
0: Awesome. Well, Ryan, I appreciate all the time, man. Always a blast talking to you and and good to catch up. And and most importantly, great that you're doing well and feeling well and and healthy and and vibrant and full of life and creating music and back doing what you're supposed to be doing.
1: Thank you, man. You're one of the coolest guys to talk to and I love you. So you're, (laughs) you're great. So thank you very much.
0: Dude, you rock! Thanks for checking out the entire podcast. Now do me a favor and subscribe to it. Radioactive Mike Z, available on all the major platforms. And while you're at it, follow me on Instagram at mikez967, and I'll follow you back, bro. Most importantly, don't miss the show. Wired in the Empire, Reach Saturday night, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on 967 Kcal Rocks.